Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court and CPS issues. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie. And today with me, I have Christine M. Cochiola. She's a licensed clinical social worker and she's tenured a professor at a community college teaching in the Human Services Pre-Social Work Studies program for over 19 years. Christine began her career in social work by becoming a certified domestic violence sexual assault counselor for Safe Haven of Greater Waterbury at the age of 19, where she remains a volunteer. Her expertise is in the area of intimate partner violence, trauma, and child abuse and neglect. She has developed various training on these topics, presenting to agencies statewide, regionally, and nationally. Ms. Cochiola is a 2022 candidate for a doctorate in social welfare attending New York University, where she teaches as an adjunct instructor. Her capstone project and publications are focused on intimate partner violence, specifically on coercive control, which we're going to talk a lot about, and the impact that this abuse has on adult and child victims. She has been a guest host on several podcasts, educating on the topic of coercive control, post-separation abuse, the trauma bond, and cognitive dissonance, and is actively involved in supporting legislation that will codify coercive control as part of domestic violence, creating a policy brief that may be used by sponsors of such bills. Ms. Cochiola has a private practice serving adolescents, families, and couples, and is a divorce mediator. So I'm so very glad to have you on. Um, How are you doing this morning? Very good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk a lot about um, coercive control and and, um, cognitive dissonance. Dissonance, (laughs) Hard to pronounce. I don't know why (laughs) I have a problem with that. (laughs) So how did you get involved uh, in all of this? Yeah, so it's an interesting story. Um, so at the very young, at a very young age, I knew I always wanted to be involved in social justice issues, and I began volunteering for Safe Haven of Greater Waterbury, right here in Connecticut, at the age of nineteen, and as a sexual assault domestic violence counselor. And um, I would volunteer my time, and then after that, I began teaching in public schools, and really started to notice. Um, and I was um, like substitute teaching, I should say, and starting to notice that children were coming to school and really needed lots of supports in the home. The home needed, and that's when I was turned on to a position at the Department of Children and Families, working in child welfare. And the amount of cases that had intimate partner violence was astounding. And the inability for victims to leave those situations also just so astounding. Um, And so I began my career path there and then um, ended up um, uh, gratefully having a position as a college instructor um, at a community college teaching actually in social work studies. So every single semester I teach on the power and control wheel and um, yeah, we have conversations. It's a couple of days of lecture and conversations and discussion. And um, it's, it's an interesting um, thing that occurred to me is that I started to realize I actually was living in a situation like that, mm-hmm. that um, my um, partner, my husband at the time was really trying to control a lot of things. And I began to suspect that I was being tracked um, 
And um, I believe I heard um, uh, some of your podcasts with Trish guys and about personality disordered people. And um, I, I just couldn't see it though. And so, um, and so, but then, then when I decided to leave him, when um, there was just so many began to really um, open up to me, I decided to leave him. The post-separation abuse that I experienced was just unbelievable. It, 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 so a person who went from loving me immensely, but also sometimes being mean to me and being harmful became volatile. Um, and um, I had to walk away from my home. Um, I'm actually going to be doing a podcast next week with a financial advisor on financial abuse, the legal system that happened. I am a fortunate um, person because my children were above the age of custody. However, what I ended up finding out after I left him and after various incidences that my daughter was um, to some degree involved in, um, uh, you know, he would be angry with her and, and a couple of things happened. What, hap what happened was she disclosed to me that at the age of nine, he began telling my children that I was crazy, that I was um, depressed, that I had mental health issues. This was on the heels of him cheating on me and me leaving the home for a few days with my children. And when I returned home with them after he begged me to come home, um, I went to work that evening to work my, 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 my job as an instructor. And when I went to work that evening, um, I guess that's when he started telling them. So for 10 or more years, this was happening. So then I leave him and in 2019, I am divorced from him after suffering legal abuse from the court system, even though there was no custody issues. The, um, the contempt that he was in and the things that I had to pay for, which were so unfair because I did not have an attorney that really understood coercive control. And I see you nodding your head. I mean, you understand this. Um, and then the, the loss of all of my personal items. I mean, I literally had to leave my home with the things in the trunk of my car. Now I am a college instructor. Yes. I am a domestic violence advocate since the age of 19. I have an amazing family support. I am not a person, this shouldn't, this shouldn't have happened to me. And Susan Weitzman writes a book, it's called Not to People Like Us. And it's about, you know, yes, of course, there are the circumstances where victims can't leave because of financial concerns or they're, they're worried they're gonna lose their children. And in my case, I did lose, um, particularly my daughter for a period of time where she really disrespect, I couldn't understand, part of the reason why I ended up filing was that she was becoming more and more contemptuous with me. More, and, and what I realized now, I look back, I realized it was alienation. That she was, an, she was, so we know in these situations um, that the, the abuser ends up having a scapegoat. And I was his primary scapegoat. Um, and, you know, oftentimes when you... Oh, are you there? Are you there? Oh. Read about that online. It often talks about a child. Hello? I'm here. I'm here. Okay. Sorry, but I don't know why it lagged. It lagged. Okay. So do you know where I last left off? <laughs> uh, you you were talking about um, your daughter had become uh, very, um, like, resentful. Full of contempt. Full of contempt. Yes, that's what was right. happening to me as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And so really from the age of 10, unbeknownst to me, the man who's telling me he loves me, is actually harming my children and harming my relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And actually also they now tell me 
Um, and I'm so grateful that there was a full turnaround, but I'll get to why there was the full turnaround. Um, but that he was alienating, trying to alienate them from my own family also, who loved them immensely. My family was the stable family. His family, he doesn't have a relationship with her. He does now, but he didn't. So, um, so in these family dynamics, what we know, we hear about that, and that's horrifying. And in my family situation, I was the scapegoat. And oftentimes, unbeknownst to me, right? Mm -hmm. And so my daughter was the golden child. Um, so if we know about these family systems, there's often a golden child and then the lost child and a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. So my son was the lost child um, and sometimes elevated to golden child when my ex-husband was triangulating the two of them against each other. So this is like a pattern that they do, right? And so he, my son would be elevated, my daughter lowered, or my daughter hired, and my son to some degree lowered, but he didn't really care. He became more lost, but my daughter did care. Mm -hmm. And so there was this pitting against me. And so, um, so again, that really intensified when I left him. And, um, and then it became clear because my daughter started disclosing some things that were happening and the things that he had done to me at the very end that we would consider post-separation abuse, which is rel a relatively new term we're using, but we know that women's risk of being harmed are much greater when she leaves. As a matter of fact, I might have an interesting stat. I mean, this policy brief I wrote that is about coercive control and the need for legislation. It says a fifth of homicide victims with restraining orders are murdered within two days of, of obtaining the order. And a third are murdered within the first month. So women are at, victims are at risk if they're actually trying to protect themselves. And so, um, so in any case, um, what we know is that these family dynamics are really difficult to navigate. And I, when I was in my marriage, I had wanted to go on for my doctorate and I decided to apply. I divorced in July, 2019. A lot happened in those two years of, of two or three years of separation and divorce, which I'll get back to, but I decided to go back to school for my doctorate in social work. And I am studying coercive control and the impact this has on children. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I'm studying the impact it has on children is because I truly believe, as does Evan Stark, who is on my committee, mm -hmm. the international expert on this. Emma Katz is very, um, I've been in touch with Emma Katz. Um, she has written um, a lot of research or two major researches, research articles on the impact on children. Not a lot of people have studied this. We look at coercive control. We're brand new to talking about it. Mm -hmm. And what we realize is that children are not witnesses. They are victims. Mm -hmm. My ex-husband manipulated my children. That's victimization. He gaslighted them. He made them, he psychologically maltreated them for years, unbeknownst to me. And so, so then going back to not to people like us, this shouldn't have happened to me. I'm educated. I know what domestic abuse is. And I like to call it domestic abuse, not domestic violence. Jess Hill, who recently wrote the book that's gone viral, not um, uh, See What You Made Me Do. She's from Australia. She is a huge criminal investigator who's a proponent on making coercive control very visible. Um, I don't know if you've just read about the woman in Australia who was burned by um, gasoline by her husband in her yard. Um, he had, oh, no. there was a restraining order. So, so what we know is that most intimate partner violence is based on power and control. Mm -hmm. 
there are some, there's a researcher Johnson who wrote a lot about situational violence. And that's the violence that, you know, there might be some aggressive behaviors and there might be some physicality. It might be both people. But coercive control is the foundation of most intimate partner violence. And oftentimes it starts as Evan, I'm sure told you in his podcast, mm -hmm. non-physical. Mm -hmm. It's often just an insidious abuse that is meant to harm the victim in a way that she does not even really realize what's going on. And I am a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. I was married to this man for 26 years and, and, and as an educator of it, did not even see it happening. Mm -hmm. And so um, what ended up happening, I thank COVID every single day. I know people have had horrible circumstances due to COVID and there have been many lost lives because my children were mandated to come home from college they were mandated to spend more time because they wanted to in their family home. Mm -hmm. So I was locked out of my family home and had to get an apartment. And when you're a child, where do you want to go? You want to go to your family home, where your bedroom is, where you grew mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. And so they would go there and come and visit me. And what happened was he did not want them to have a relationship with me. And he couldn't believe that given the choice between their bedrooms and their family home and their beautiful home that he built, he says, we built it, mm -hmm. and coming to my apartment, he couldn't believe they would choose my apartment. Mm -hmm. Not that they chose it more, but they had to because he, when I divorced, when I separated him in 20, with him in 2017, he stopped paying all college education. He stopped paying any of their finances. So I told them, listen, in order for me to put on the FAFSA that I am your parent, you have to be with me more days a year mm -hmm. or else I would be lying to the federal government, which I don't want to do. And so of course mm -hmm. I don't want to do. So they had to be with me at least four days a week or more days a month. And he started locking the garage on them. He started turning off the electricity so they couldn't leave. He started hiding their car keys so they couldn't come and visit me. So he began he had overtly, and this is the point about coercive control, is it's an, it, 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 excuse me, it's a covert abuse. Mm -hmm. Insidious, mm -hmm. you don't even see it, you don't even know what's going on. So there's all of that. And then when they begin to lose their power and control, they begin to be more covert. This is when we see homicides. This mm -hmm. is when we see locking out of a house. This is when we see, um, well, in my case, 3,000 harassing emails over 13 months. The abuse became much more covert. And with my children, they didn't know all of that. However, and that's a whole nother conversation, but I, I would not say your dad is a liar. But when they would come to see me and say, well, dad said this, I'd say that's not true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I began trying hard. And this is where I really hope my expertise is able, uh, this is where I want to go in the future, is helping parents of children who have had this experience um, be able to be that strong, unconditional, positive regard parent for, for their children, but also be able to tell the truth. Because see, the children have been lied to. Mm -hmm. They've been lied to by someone they adore and love, and they're so confused. What I tried to do all of the time, and, and I was not successful all of the time, was they'd come over and they'd always share, especially my son. Well, dad said this, dad said that. Like, dad says he's paying my college tuition. Well, I pulled up my checking account. I said, Who, where are those withdrawals? Add them up. 
who's paying. In other words, I didn't say your dad's a liar. I just said, that's not true. Didn't call him out as a liar and then began to show them what the truth was so that they could make their own decision without me saying he's a horrible person. He is a horrible person, but, but I didn't put them in the, I, I didn't want them to think. So what was happening? And my son would say this, the moment I would say something bad about their father, like I, he has been so hurtful to me or something, or he, how could he say horrible things about my family? My, my son would say, you understand that every time I go over there, he's telling me the same thing about you. Because what do these perpetrators do? They claim victim, right? Right. So they twist the story. And so when you are the real victim and you're saying the same exact thing, the offender saying, kids are more confused. Like they can't hear. You have to sound different. You have to come from a very different place to reaffirm for them that you are different, that you're not what the offender is saying. So it became, it, it was hard because, and so I, I write about this in one of my um, uh, hopeful publications that's coming up. I write about how as a victim of alienation, my children were taken from me, little did I know, for 10 or more years. I mean, I, my, my son and I were always okay, but, but there was always a little something, but my daughter, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. he, he took her from me. And you know what I'm talking about, that pain, oh, definitely. right? Definitely. And it's so difficult to try to be patient with her Mm -hmm. when she's actually doing the same exact thing. She's coercively controlling me the same way he did. Mm -hmm. She's, she's, gosh, I would never want her, but it's abusive. They learn, the the children learn to use the same tactics that that were used on them as a protection. It's not their fault. Mm -hmm. And so when that child behaves in that manner, they're triggering a, a similar response from the victim. So if you're mom and you're the child and the child is doing basically the same thing mm-hmm. that the adult perpetrator did, mom has to somehow or another, even through all her CPTSD, mm-hmm. she has to figure out how to respond differently. How does she, how does she do that? I mean, she has to be gosh, getting so much support. She has to really um, like feel strong in who she is. She needs, this is again, where I hope I can, this is what I want to be able to do is to offer this to victims. Is that, you know, and I do run a support group every other Monday night. I do know of several on Facebook for victims of these types of offenders. Um, but this is, this is really, so what we know about what research shows us is that children who grow up in these families have a greater risk factor of becoming mm-hmm. like the offender. How do we stop that? Because I'll tell you, my ex-husband's mother, um, she took an ax to the family boat the day that the father and mother divorced. The father got the boat, the mother got the house. And the day of the divorce in front of the children, she took an ax to the boat. I mean, mm-hmm. and when, and, and so, you know, I became desensitized to that story throughout the years. My, my ex-husband is a school guidance counselor at a high school. He went, he went through a, 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 a school counseling program. He said he was better like that. That didn't follow him. I thought he was the healthiest one of his, all, all of his siblings, but mm-hmm. instead 
for the for as long as I knew him, I'm very sure now that he was always involved in multiple affairs and always participating in this insidious abuse. Mm-hmm. And and so what we know is how do we help these children have stronger egos? And what's so important, and please stop me if I'm going too far. Oh, too you're long. doing great. You're doing great. Um, so what we, the other thing that we are finding is that, so, you know, m- m- let's just say a child says something really mean to the parent that sounds like the offender. So the protective parent says something really mean. And the protective parent says, you know what, that was, that was really mean of you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how could you say that? Now, that's the protective parent standing up for herself. We tell victims, stand up for yourself, right? Right, right. We, we tell parents, um, set up clear boundaries with people who are offending, right? Like, even if it's a child who's being, you know, retaliatory, whatever it is. But the problem is, is that if a child already has been so significantly abused that they are demonstrating those same characteristics, every time I correct, I'm actually creating what we call narcissistic injury. Hmm. And narcissistic injury actually only creates a more protective ego. And what is the problem with these offenders? Their ego is so protected that they won't allow themselves to be vulnerable. They won't allow themselves to have faults. Mm -hmm. And so parenting a child who's behaving this way becomes such, like, it's so, it's so confusing Mm -hmm. because, so it's about, I mean, and this is a whole nother rabbit hole, but it's about positive regard as much as possible. Unconditional positive regard. The child says they, you know, you're the worst mother in the world. I hate you. Look what you do. You do nothing for me. You do Mm -hmm. nothing for me. And instead of saying, you know what, that was really mean. How could you say that to me? Right? You say, I'm sorry you feel that way. Mm -hmm. I disagree. I'm sorry you feel that way. And you walk away. Mm -hmm. Because what the if, if we understand the personality disorders of these offenders, what we know is they're wanting us to engage. See, I'm doing a research study right now. It's actually just finishing up. Um, it's a psychological coercive control and the psychological abuse that victims experience. And what I, my hypothesis is, is that most victims are um, people who like to please others. People mm-hmm. who really want to fix everything. They don't want people to be disappointed. And you're, you're nodding your head because you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, it's but like, probably like nurses, people that want to help. Social workers, nurses, right. right? Like this whole, like, so the characteristics of the victim that are, are actually, if we had a world filled of people like that, we'd have mm-hmm. a pretty awesome world, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that's perfect for an offender. And so when someone is, we call it subjugated, when someone is subjugated, part of what they do, because they feel so bad if they did something wrong, or if someone told them they did something wrong, is they run around trying to explain it. I didn't mean it that way. But what the offender does is he preys on that. Mm -hmm. He loves that the victim feels guilty. He Mm -hmm. loves that she's trying to fix everything. This feeds his ego. It makes him feel good. So take a child. 
Hmm. When that's happening with your child, the more you, exp- honey, that's not true. Mom, mom, mom just bought you all those clothes. I just bought your prom dress. I paid for your college tuition. I'm just giving like examples out there. Mom, what are you talking about? We just went to dinner last night. Mom, you know, mom loves you. Like this is the explaining, right? Mm-hmm. Justifying. Right. Like I didn't mean that. How could you think that about me? I love you so much. How could you think that about me? That empowers. And so what we have to do is cut that off. Okay. We have to say, I'm sorry, you feel that way. Well, I don't agree, but okay. Mm-hmm. Now, did, and then you like, you literally, you cut it off. Like, did you want, did you want um, some salad for lunch? Like you, <laughs> right, you, cut it, right. you cut it off. So you don't feed into it. You don't feed into it. So what we know is these personalities have, they, need, they have a need, right? Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is as a victim, if you've been with someone a long time, literally that's all you've been doing is feeding into it because you're so worried about the other person thinking less of you or, mm-hmm. or you want to fix it. You want this relationship to work. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that when you leave that relationship and you're trying to help your child, mm-hmm. that you actually would still have that same pattern of behavior mm-hmm. that you can't have. Because if there's any hope of your child not being like the offender, you cut off the supply and you have unconditional positive regard 99% of the time. Mm-hmm. You, you know, this is, this is the kid who can't hear that, you know, you're disappointed that they didn't get a, a that they got a D in a class, mm-hmm. you, you know, that you really wish they got a C. This is a kid who needs to hear, you know what, sweetheart, maybe next time you'll do better. Mm-hmm. You know, or next time, if you need help, let mom know, I'll be happy to help you. Like there has to, because that's a narcissistic injury. And the more we feed the injury and we feed the, we explain, explain, and feed the oxygen, the more we feed the negative personality style. And um, yeah, so that's. <laughs> like, is this where cognitive dissonance comes in when, um, <clears throat> I'm so sorry, um, when, you know, you're, let's say a parent is feeding into it. With, you know, trying to explain themselves and, you know, I, you know, that's not how it was. That's not the memory I, re- I recall, you know, that's, is, that's what the cognitive dissonance is. So the cognitive dissonance. Um, so what happens in these relationships is go back to partners, adult, uh, part, protective parent and um, offending parent is what happens in these relationships is that a trauma bond is formed. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's, it's an addiction and um, you know, you don't want to, you, you always go back to that relationship. This is why we know it takes victim, victim seven times, seven attempts before they actually leave for good, because it's just so difficult to leave, especially when there's what we call them breadcrumbs. When, when mm-hmm. the perp, the offender gives just a little something nice and then the, the victim says, okay, I'm going to try again, again, that subjugation. I, I, I'm going to try because the offender has stripped the victim of all autonomy because mm-hmm. she's not able to think for herself because she's always worried about making sure the relationship is okay. And because she's been gaslighted so much and manipulated so much, she doesn't even know what her thinking is. So the trauma bond occurs and what cognitive dissonance is, is this inability to actually see what's really going on. Mm-hmm. 
So I dissonate from the truth. This guy has called me names. This guy has been mean to me. That, and I, I can't, I actually push that aside and keep pushing that away. Mm-hmm. That's the dissonance. It's my, my body, my, my brain does not want to believe what is accurate. So what I always say to victims is if this was happening to your sister, someone, think of someone you love so much, your sister, your daughter, would you think that behavior was bad? Because we don't dissonate when it's someone else. Mm-hmm. We can clearly see, oh my God, get the hell out of there. That's a very bad relationship. Or no, you shouldn't give him a second chance or a third chance, right? Mm-hmm. But in the case of ourselves, we don't want to believe it. We don't want to believe it. So that's the dissonance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so for children, um, ima- so imagine how much more trauma bonded they are. This is a parent of theirs. Mm-hmm. This, is their, this is their father who they remember playing on the floor with them and, you know, wrestling or maybe going to a soccer game or whatever. They have some fond memories there. They have like, and their, their development is not capable of differentiating that as well, which is why I believe children become alienated is because they, they simply do not have the bandwidth, the developmental, um, they don't have, they're not developed enough mm-hmm. to actually be able to see. And then they have cognitive, they're trauma bonded and then they dissonate from it. Oh, well, he just called mama, whatever, but he's my father. Mm-hmm. And so and so I wrote um, an op-ed um, after this recent Jennifer's Law that we're trying to get passed in Connecticut. It's mm-hmm. Jennifer's with an apostrophe S after the last S because it's named after all Jennifer's who have been victims. There was a Jennifer Magnano whose children were murdered right in front of her. She did everything right in the state of Connecticut. Um, and she went to California to find safety because she couldn't get it here um, in a shelter. And so she had family in California. So she went to a shelter in California and her um, soon to be ex-husband who she was separated from filed um, that she had kidnapped the children. Um, and so she was forced to come back. And when she came back, she was murdered. And so talking about... I. And Jennifer um, Dulos, who was a very famous case that happened here in 2019, um, you know, same thing. She told the judge, she told the judge, she told the court that I am worried about my safety and my children's safety. And then she was murdered. So um, what I believe happens, and so this is an example of cognitive dissonance, is that our, our judicial system has cognitive dissonance. Definitely. Oh, definitely. They don't want to acknowledge that if a perpetrator has domestically offended a victim, then that person probably is not someone good to be around the children. They don't want to believe that domestic abuse equals murder, homicide of the adult victims and children victims. And so that was what my op-ed was about, is that legislators and um, the judicial system have cognitive dissonance. I mean, I hope that like kind of helps frame it for you. Oh, it does. This it really inability. Does. What are you talking about? Like, we don't look at 
domestic violence, and I like to use the word domestic abuse, Jess Hill uses domestic abuse because it's not always violent Mm -hmm. until there's a homicide, but oftentimes it's nonviolent, right? And that's what Evan Stark always talks about is that we have to stop looking through the violent incident model. We have to look at this more in a global perspective that abuse can look like a lot of different things, entrapment, you know, a liberty crime, all of these things. But this idea that we really need to, um, how could, how could domestic violence or domestic abuse not be looked at as a primary factor in child custody? Mm -hmm. This is mind blowing. Not one state in the United States looks at domestic violence as a primary factor in custody. They, some of the term, some of the wording says, um, should be, um, what's the word? Um, should like domestic violence should be assessed, you know, Mm -hmm. but they don't say it's a primary factor. And, and then, so then the, the, the compounding of that is that what if, there was never an arrest for, mm-hmm. um, well, like in the case of me, there was, my children were over the age of custody, but 3,000 harassing, threatening emails. It took me three months to get the police to have my ex-husband arrested. It took me 12 months to come forward. I was afraid to come forward because I was afraid about what the results of that would be. And I also, so also the trauma bond, I didn't want him arrested. I felt bad having him arrested. And so he knew the police. And they sat on it. And so what, what, if, if there is no legislation that recognizes coercive control, mm-hmm. which is maybe non-physical, then there will be no arrest. Mm-hmm. Even though he may have been harming her for so long, there will be no arrest. And therefore, these perpetrators, the perpetrators who are offending based on power and control, who are the most dangerous, we know they're the most dangerous, are never getting arrested mm-hmm. and they're getting custody. And what we know, Joan Mayer just did a study. I don't know if Evan mentioned it in his podcast, but we know that 50% of these child custody disputes are domestic violence cases. Mm-hmm. And that more often than not, the batterer actually gets custody the moment the victim mentions domestic abuse. Because as soon as judges hear domestic abuse, they think she's trying to alienate Mm -hmm. him from the children. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, wait a minute, maybe there's domestic abuse here. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we looking at that? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, And it's happening all the time. You know, and I've I've talked to quite a few women that have had their kids taken away mm-hmm. um, based on the other uh, the ex saying, "Oh, it's it's parental alienation or the domestic violence card," and it just it's not stopping. No. Yeah. And I, th- I think the only way to shut down family court is just to abolish it and start over with something else. I mean, I don't know how you feel about that, but it's just not improving. I, I, I would agree with you. I think we have a systemic issue related to, unfortunately, this is not a popular word, but it's related to patriarchy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, judges were lawyers. And, you know, I think Trisha Guys actually, when I was listening to her podcast, she, I said, yep, that's exactly right. She said, you know, lawyers are not trained in family law. 
Mm -hmm. um, they're not trained in that and they don't get any special training on domestic violence. And so, you know, if they don't understand what's going on, um, there's a legal abuse of, of victims at that point. And so, you know, we need more people to understand that, first of all, that we do have a culture of young men growing up in toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. where they are learning that there's a certain way to treat people of the opposite gender. Um, and we need to fix that. We need to give men the space to be vulnerable. Um, we need to treat men with kindness and, and love and affection. And we need to help parents do that. Um, you know, and then we need to, I, you know, for me, the elephant in the room is not talking about personality disorders because there is no question that these coercively controlling parents have. So, so I'm a clinician. Um, I'm an, a licensed clinical social worker. I am not supposed to identify someone with any disorder unless I've seen them. Mm -hmm. So I say this um, tentatively, understanding that I don't have the right to do that unless I've actually seen a client and assessed them. Mm -hmm. But I don't have a doubt in my mind that these offenders have personality disorders. And um, there's um, a psychologist online, Dr. Grande, and he talks about psychopath factor one and psychopath factor two. Mm. And you know, when we think of the word psychopath, we are always thinking about someone who is a serial killer, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's not necessarily true. That might be psychopath factor two, where there's a more close alliance with antisocial personality disorder. But there's also other people who are very good at navigating the system. They become friends with police. They walk into court acting... Yes like they're charming and wonderful they do such a, they 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 are able to have such a different personality in different circumstances and we align that as you i'm sure already know very closely with the narcissistic personality disorder mm -hmm. but there's a spectrum mm -hmm. and you know i like to say it's 0 to 10 and then you know the people who are 10s are willing to to even harm their children in the process, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, you know, they, they certainly could meet the criteria for a psychopath factor one, where they covertly try to offend in ways, and, and it's methodical, and they know what they're doing, as Evan mm -hmm. Stark says, it's repetitive, methodical, and the children's reaction has to be co control in the context of control. They have been so controlled or watched the victim be controlled, that they have learned how to control themselves mm -hmm. in a way that keeps them protected, even if it means rejecting the parent that they know loves them unconditionally. Oh, that even was, if they know that. That was well said. Yes. <laughs> it's very sad. Um, I don't know. You know, there's, you know, when you talk about even like legal abuse, when the, um, your ex is constantly filing motions and making you go in there and even causing job loss, you know, I mean, th this happens to men and women. And yes, it does. I, it just, uh, 
I don't know what they do about that. <laughs> you know, you can hold someone in contempt, but the judge just gives them a slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. And the coercive control happens so, so much in the courtroom as well, as you said, with these judges and these attorneys. And it's, it's creepy, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. I wish well, I had, you know, I wish I had an answer. I mean, I just feel so bad that there is no answer for this other than educating, you know. And how do you feel about, like, educating these kids in, um, we'll say, ninth to 12th grade up on, uh, per, you know, course of control, yeah. you know, like, uh, like a psychology class that includes that and personality disorders. And um, I don't know if you saw the film Erasing Family at all, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, um, at the college I teach at, I actually create an intimate partner violence sexual assault prevention program, which is the first of its type in um, a Connecticut community college. Okay. And it's, it's part of the Campus Save Act. It's this, um, you know, uh, the Violence Against Women Act created all of these <clears throat> guidelines to ensure that we are educating and providing supports in colleges. And, um, and so one of the trainings is called Where's Your Line? And it's about healthy relationships. So it's educating young people about what to look for in a relationship, right? Because that's the age appropriate conversation. Right. And coercive control is part of that. But you're, to your point, um, yes, we need to be having discussions K through 12 about what's acceptable. We have bullying. And mm -hmm. honestly, isn't that what the offender is? He's a bully. And exactly. by the way, I should really be very clear about this. There are female perpetrators, mm -hmm. um, for sure. Um, there are, you know, this happens in heterosexual, homosexual relationships. This is not just, you know, gender binary. Uh, you know, we actually, we have to talk about it as being both sexes. And mm -hmm. the idea, um, however, when it comes to the ability to, um, and to be forceful in, in, in entrapment, that mm -hmm. tends to be more of a male perpetrator. Um, you know, men just have, again, because of patriarchy, because of societal norms that we have, um, it just, that tends to be, the more significant cases tend to be males mm -hmm. as perpetrators. Um, but yeah, K through 12 needs to happen. We need to be having these discussions um, for sure. And I'm not sure children... Um, so I think the issue with talking about personality disorders to children would be that if a child, we would need to have like a safety net in place because if a child's watching something or learning about something and then they're like, oh my gosh, that's my father, right? Mm -hmm. Then we have to really be sure that we have the, the, the clinical expertise to support the child at that point about their experiences. Um, that would be, that's really important, you know, but, right. but you're, you know, what's interesting is, is as a society, we're always coming in after the problem has been created instead of coming in preventing it. Mm -hmm. You know, how many court cases would be no longer a court case? How many less, fewer court cases would we have mm -hmm. if we were able to educate more on what to look for? Right. Yeah. Prevention before it, you know, as it's kind of happening, you mm -hmm. know, and nip it in the bud. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, I think, um, you know, e even the uh, school psychologists have got to be aware of this, and they could also help nip it in the bud. 
Sure. And there's school social workers. So in a school system, um, I worked in schools for some years. Um, there is the guidance counselors that you and I probably remember doing a lot of academic counseling. They're now trained in counseling. Mm-hmm. So they actually are able to run support groups and intervene on behalf of children. School psychologists actually most often do academic testing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll counsel students, but their main role is to provide academic assessment on children who are dif- having difficulties in classes. And then the school social worker works with children who might have social and emotional difficulties. Mm-hmm. So there's three catch basins. Right. You know? And, um, and so at some point, hopefully a child who's having these difficulties at home is able to go to one of them to right. get support. Mm-hmm. That would be yeah. good. Um, be. I, I don't want to suck up all your time today. You were an awesome guest. and I'd like to have you back on. Thank you. Thank you. Might I just mention a little bit about Jennifer's Law so that people know where it is and yes. the other laws in the country? Yes, so right, Yes. So right now, um, coercive control is part of domestic violence language in all of the UK and in Taiwan, Ontario, Canada, California has adopted it in the fall and so has Hawaii, which is fantastic. And part of that legislation is recognizing that non-physical violence is abuse. So if a victim were to have threatening emails, a perpetrator could actually be arrested. As a matter of fact, in the UK, there's been uh, 358, um, I should mention this statistic, there's 358 homicides in the UK um, during I want to say 2015, 2016, that period of time, and 92 to 94% were um, controlling and uh, obsessive behaviors. So stalking. So those, the kinds of behaviors, you know, tracking someone, um, having, um, and, and victims need to know that there are all kinds of apps now where your phone could be tracked without anybody even gaining access to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, but we are in Connecticut, it's Jennifer's Law that would make coercive control part of domestic violence and also make domestic um, a history of domestic violence a primary factor in determining custody. There is also a law, ours is going to Senate right now, so we need as many people to, con- you can live in any state to contact senators in another state about a piece of legislation. So contact Connecticut legislators now um, to let them know. In Maryland, um, the law is in judiciary, judiciary right now. Um, It's law 1036. In Connecticut, it's 1091. In New York, there's Kyra's law. Um, Kyra was murdered by her father um, after the mother um, separated from the father. I believe she separated. Um, In any case, Jacqueline is working diligently to try to make this law um, go through. It is in judiciary in June. It's uh, law 05398. And in South Carolina... The law is in the House by Representative May, Law 3621. And in Colorado, um, it's called Ties Law. Again, another child murdered. Mm. Um, so, um, and in, um, in Pennsylvania, Caden's Law, SB 868. So these are all the laws that are right now somewhere being negotiated. And the problem is, is that these legislators get hundreds of laws that people are requesting to make a law. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of talk about gun legislation right now. These are all really important laws, but ours are laws that make domestic abuse part of child custody need to be at the forefront. They mm-hmm. need to be at the forefront now. 
So please contact the legislators in these states um, to ensure that we get these laws passed. Okay. That's what I would ask the listeners to do. Most definitely. And if someone wants to reach you, how can you want to be reached? Sure. ChristineCocciola.com is my website. That's uh, Christine, C-O-C-C-H-I-O-L-A.com. Mm-hmm. And I'd be happy to talk to anyone. Um, on Instagram, uh, Coercive Control is IPV. Um, that's where I've had my research um, being compiled. And um, yeah, be happy to talk with anyone. Any victims who are trying to figure out how to best help their children and how to be best at being the parent their children need, even though they are victims, and I'm not trying to minimize their victimization, but we need to now look at the children and their victimization. Anybody who needs support with that, certainly mm-hmm. feel free to reach out. Okay. Well, one, one last question. What do these parents do that are, that are like blocked from their kids? Like their kids won't even speak to them at all. So you're just in limbo. Yeah. So, um, so I would say that if you're completely blocked, and knowing that, um, you know, even mail is going to be intercepted, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I would still send the mail. Mm-hmm. I would send a letter once a week for the rest mm-hmm. of their life and take a picture of it. And because someday when they come back to you, you want to be, you want to be able to say, I never stopped trying. Mm-hmm. I never stopped trying. You know, if it's, e- if you have their email address, if you have their college address, you know, you could send a note and always the notes and the letters and the texts. Um, I have several clients right now working with me. It's like a text every Friday. Just wanted to check in. Want you to know I love you. I hope the week is going well. No drama. Mm-hmm. No, I miss you. Like you can say I miss you maybe, but you mm-hmm. don't, it's not like, it's not about me, your parent. It's about you. I am here for you. Mm-hmm. And so really trying hard to minimize any of their guilt mm-hmm. because they're carrying guilt, even if they're not re- cognizant of it because of that cognitive dissonance. Right. right. Um, you know, just really simple. Just wanted to send a note to let you know, I love you. And I'm thinking of you. I hope exams are going well or be- good luck on exams, like real, just normal stuff that, so the problem is the relationship with the offending parent is conditional. Mm-hmm. It's entirely conditional. And your goal is to make your relationship with them unconditional. And if they have no contact with you, they need to know they can always come back to that unconditional. They don't trust it. They've been taught not to trust. So they need to know that they can come back. Definitely. This was a great conversation. I'm so glad you came on. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Definitely. Slam the gavels of podcasts to help the public understand what really goes on in the family courtrooms and that in turn perpetuate parental alienation. I'm your host, Marianne Petri, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again with Christine and other guests in the future. And I totally thank you, thank you, thank you again to Christine. Thank you.